You're listening to the podcast from Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. Episode 17, The Dead Sea Scrolls. The story of the discovery and gradual publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls is so well known that it hardly needs retelling. It is so fun, though, that I can't resist. One winter day in 1946-47, three Bedouins were tending their goats in the Judean desert, close to the western shore of the Dead Sea. While rounding up their herd at the end of the day, one of the shepherds threw a rock into one of the many caves in the area. To his surprise, he heard pottery break. The next day, they returned to investigate and discovered several scrolls in earthenware jars, scroll jars, as they are referred to today and labeled as such in museum exhibitions. The Bedouins took what they could carry, and after holding on to them for a couple of months, brought them to antiquities dealers in Bethlehem. Eventually, the scrolls found their way into the hands of an antiquity dealer known as Kando, who was to negotiate the sale of the scrolls. After a delicate period of negotiation, during a tense time, remember that Palestine was under a fraying British mandate at this time, Kando sold five or four scrolls, depending on how you count them, to the Syrian Orthodox Metropolitan or Bishop Samuel for $97. In the meantime, Bedouin shepherds throughout the region were on the lookout for further discoveries. Samuel was unsure about what exactly he had bought and if they were worth selling. His dilemma was compounded by the creation of the State of Israel in May 1948. The fighting during this period made it difficult to show the scrolls to experts, and the change of legal status created uncertainties about the proper ownership of the scrolls. Several universities that expressed interest in the scrolls, including Yale, Duke, and the University of Toronto, eventually walked away because they remained unsure about who had proper legal title to them. Despite these uncertainties, Samuel did manage to have the scrolls photographed by John Trevor at the American School of Oriental Research. These excellent photographs, which began to circulate among scholars, showed that Samuel was in possession of the Isaiah Scroll, the Habakkuk Commentary, and the Manual of Discipline. Samuel rebuffed Israeli attempts to buy the scrolls, instead opting to put a classified advertisement in the Wall Street Journal. The ad, published on June 1, 1954, read, Miscellaneous for sale, the four dead sea scrolls. Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Box F206, Wall Street Journal. A man claiming to be a private collector responded, and he soon bought the scrolls for $250,000. He was, in fact, working on behalf of the Israeli government. Some of these original acquisitions can be seen today in the Shrine of the Book in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So goes the story of the first four scrolls, but what about the other 900? Bedouins uncovered major caves in their search for more scrolls, followed soon after by archaeologists, working with permission of the government of Jordan, which controlled the Judean desert at that time. Several scrolls were thus found and sold privately. While some of these scrolls have since been acquired by public institutions, especially the State of Israel, 
which legally claims them as the cultural heritage of the Jewish people, a few are rumored to remain in the hands of private collectors. Probably a greater loss to scholars is the fact that the caves were disturbed before archaeologists could more systematically investigate them. In any case, the remaining scrolls were shipped to labs in East Jerusalem for reconstruction, preservation, and filming. At the same time, the archaeologists excavated the settlement of Qumran, which was very close to the cluster of caves that yielded the majority of scroll fragments. Several of the major and best-preserved scrolls were quickly published. The story of the ancient scrolls then again collided forcefully with the forces of modern politics. In 1967, the Israeli capture of East Jerusalem included the Rockefeller Museum, where most of the scrolls were housed. Israel claimed legal ownership of the scrolls and soon moved them to their newly constructed home, the Shrine of the Book. They respected the rights of the scholars who previously had been working on them, though, to continue their work. For reasons that are disputed, the pace of publication dramatically slowed. An Israeli publication team moved to take some control over the process, and the entire affair, flamed by unceasingly harsh editorials in the semi-popular journal Biblical Archaeology Review, attracted public attention. Why were the scrolls still not completely published? Were they hiding something? There were probably many reasons for the delay, some more justifiable than others, but there was no conspiracy and no big bombshell. The opening of the floodgates came from an unexpected source. The scrolls had all been photographed and copies deposited in several libraries throughout the world for safekeeping. Each of these libraries had signed a non-disclosure agreement except one. In 1991, Huntington Library in California discovered that it owned a set of these photographs that came to it indirectly and was thus not accompanied by a non-disclosure agreement. They soon released the full set of photographs into the public domain for all to see. In some respects, the story of the finding and publication of the scrolls is more exciting than the story told by the scrolls themselves or it is at least a great deal clearer. The scrolls are important in subtle ways for historians. Their discovery contains no new or important revelations for adherents of religion today. Nobody's Judaism or Christianity changed as the result of the scrolls. No great myths were reinforced or debunked. For historians of the Jews of antiquity, though, they're a tremendous find. Discounting Josephus and Paul, we have no literature that identifies itself as a product of a Pharisee, and none at all from the pen of Sadducees. The literature of early Christians post-date the life of Jesus by a good many years. The Dead Sea Scrolls, perhaps partly authored by Essenes, a point to which I will return toward the end of this episode, but definitely by a Jewish sectarian group, open a window into, among other things, one Jewish sect during the Second Temple period. I will first describe the finds and their significance before turning to what they, combined with the archaeological evidence, tell us about their authors. Scholars typically classify the scrolls into three groups, biblical texts, non-sectarian Jewish texts, and sectarian texts. The quantitative breakdown is somewhere in the area of 40% biblical texts 
and 30% each of non-sectarian and sectarian compositions. The scrolls are almost entirely written in Hebrew and Aramaic, with a smattering of scrolls from one particular cave in Greek. They are primarily written on parchment or animal skins, with the notable exception of one remarkable and enigmatic scroll written on copper. The main cluster of caves in which they were found is located within sight of the settlement of Qumran, but a few of the caves, including the first one discovered by the Bedouin, are a good hike away. The entire area on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea is about 20 kilometers east of Jerusalem through some harsh and rugged terrain. Although located near an oasis, even then the area appears to have been sparsely populated. The biblical texts written in Hebrew are precisely that, texts that we can identify as being part of the Hebrew Bible. I phrase this a bit elliptically on purpose. The Hebrew texts of the Bible found in the scrolls are sometimes not identical, either to the version now canonized and used by Jews, known as the Masoretic text, or the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Often the differences are minor, consisting of an added or omitted letter, most typically a Hebrew vav or yud, which can serve as guides to pronunciation. Other differences are more significant. Very different versions of Jeremiah, Daniel, and the Book of Psalms were found, for example, right alongside versions that are most familiar to us. The scrolls include a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 11 that makes the text much more comprehensible. Did this drop out of later versions, or was it added to an earlier one in order to clarify it? We don't know. Almost certainly the former was the case for Psalm 145, known in Jewish liturgy as Ashrei. This is an acrostic that even in the time of the rabbis was missing one letter, the nun. The rabbis have some theories as to why King David, to whom they ascribe the psalm, would have omitted a verse beginning with nun. Yet the full psalm, including the verse with the nun, was found in a fragment among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Faithful, Ne'eman, is God in all his ways and gracious in all his deeds, this psalmist declared. A similar reading is found in the Septuagint. Somehow the verse dropped out in the version that would make it into the Masoretic text. Every book found in today's Hebrew Bible is represented among the scrolls, with the single exception of the Book of Esther. There is a text that is often referred to as Proto-Esther because its fragmentary story seems to resemble that of the Biblical Book of Esther, but it is clearly distinct from that Biblical book. The absence of Esther might be happenstance, or it might be because the book was not yet accepted into their canon. We have no way of knowing just yet. From this data we learn that even in the first century CE, the text of the Hebrew Bible was somewhat fluid. We should not exaggerate this. The text of the Torah, the Pentateuch, contained few significant variants, and most of the rest of the books were similarly stable. But we have little reason to think that these differences were the result of sloppiness. There were different versions of Holy Scripture in circulation, which fell into a few discernible patterns or families. It would not be until the early Middle Ages that Jews would fully nail down the text of their Bible. It was not just the text of the Bible that was in flux, though. Among the works that we call non-sectarian compositions, 
texts that contain no evidence of a distinct sectarian ideology. Where many that purport to be holy, they give every indication that they consider themselves to contain authentic divine revelation. The books of Jubilees and Enoch, which I discussed in a previous episode, are among these books. There are fragments of a wide range of books like this, either pseudepigraphical, that is, written in the name of a biblical character, or simple declarations of divine revelation. The Genesis Apocryphon, for example, is the story of Genesis, but different. The Temple Scroll, found in Cave 11, is a long restatement of Deuteronomy harmonized with other parts of the Torah, all written in the voice of God rather than Moses. This scroll, which predictably breaks off just at the point where I needed it for some prior research on ancient Jewish attitudes towards sex and marriage, imagines a temple that differs from our biblical descriptions. What was this scroll used for? Was it meant to replace Deuteronomy or to supplement it? These are among the questions that this scroll and those like it refuse to tell us. Scholars believe that these texts, like the biblical texts, were not created or read only by the small sectarian group that seemed to be behind the third group of texts. We should assume that these non-sectarian texts circulated more widely and that at least some Jews thought that they were authentic records of divine revelation. Seen in this way, the model of understanding the Jewish community is broken up into two camps, one orthodox that venerated the correct group of scriptures, and the other heterodox, whose canon differed from that of the orthodox, isn't very accurate or useful. Whereas we have extensive evidence of debate among Jewish groups of that time over a wide range of issues, surprisingly none of it is about authentic scripture. The contents of the sacred canon would engender enormous debates among rabbis and early Christians, but for Jews of the Second Temple period, we should imagine that there was a wide and fluid range of texts accepted as in some way sacred and authentic. In a few minutes, I'll return to the issue of how the texts may have gotten into these caves. But one explanation is that they were brought by Jews who came out to join the sect in the desert. For these Jews, these texts may not have differed from what we now call the biblical texts. Upon joining the group, they could then have deposited their texts in the group's library. The third and most interesting group of texts are what we call sectarian texts, which include the Manual of Discipline, the Habakkuk Commentary, as well as the MMT letter, Mitzat Maaseh HaTorah, that I discussed a few episodes back. The Damascus document, numerous other fragments that deal, among other things, with the rules that govern the community. These texts use a similar technical terminology and seem to presuppose, for the most part, a closed, organized, and hierarchical social group. It is this group of texts that give us an inside look at a Jewish sect from the Second Temple period. It is important to recognize that, like every other group of texts that I've discussed thus far, these texts are hardly transparent. By analyzing the script and sometimes by scientific means, we can roughly date a copy of a text, but that tells us only when that text was physically written, not when it was first created or composed. In the case of the Damascus document, 
Our fullest copy dates to a medieval manuscript found in the Cairo Geniza. How it got there remains a mystery. Moreover, even the text as we have it sometimes underwent development. Assorted fragments, for example, make it clear that the Manual of Discipline changed through time. And the most complete version to survive is exactly that, only one version that might have been in circulation. So with those caveats, what can we say about the sect? A very different picture emerges from most of these scrolls than the one that came out of MMT. As you might recall, I suggested that MMT might have been written in the early stages of the group's formation. Its tone is mild and accommodating. In these other documents, the tone is harsh and polemical. What MMT sets up as a difference over particular points of ritual and maybe calendar, this literature sets up as a cosmic and deterministic dichotomy. There are two kinds of people in this world according to this view, the children of light and the children of darkness. They, quite naturally, are children of light, apparently predestined to be so, and their opponents are all children of darkness. They apparently make no distinction between non-sectarian Jews and Gentiles, all get lumped together as children of darkness. The Manual of Discipline presumes a rigid, tightly organized, and isolated group. Prospective members go through a three-year testing period, at the end of which they are enrolled in the group and allowed access to the pure food and drink. The community has a variety of officers, perhaps including an inspector, examiner, an instructor, and governing council. The priests play an important role, although the scrolls are not entirely consistent about their role, as well as the role of the group's other leaders. It is unclear from the scrolls alone if women could join the group. The Manual of Discipline seems to presume a male community, but is, does not explicitly prohibit women from joining. The Damascus document, on the other hand, appears to presume the existence of families living outside of a central settlement, in commerce with those outside of the group. One of the major beliefs of the group was that there was revealed and hidden knowledge, a position that when held by some early Christians later came to be known as Gnosticism. Only the preordained members of the group, who sometimes called themselves the community of the renewed covenant, had access to the hidden knowledge. This knowledge included distinctive laws dealing especially with purity and Sabbath. They appear to have been particularly strict about both. As with the later Gnostic groups, though, the hidden knowledge might have had a metaphysical or even an ontological dimension. The group prayed daily. Many of these prayers are unexceptional, confessions, praises, and thanksgiving to God mainly. One set of prayers, though, a scroll known as the Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice, aspires to something more. These songs are replacements for the regular Sabbath sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple. The group does not appear to have actually rejected physical sacrifice, but will restrain from it until the temple is pure according to their rules. In the interim, they, like many Jews today, offer prayer in the place of sacrifice. These songs primarily concern the angelic realm. Here, for example, is a typical quote. 
Psalm of singing on the tongue of the seventh of the sovereign princes, a powerful song to the God of holiness with seven wonderful songs. You will have to sing to the King of holiness seven times with the seven words of wonderful songs, seven psalms of his blessing, seven psalms of glorification of his justice, seven psalms of exaltation of his kingdom, seven psalms of praise of his glory, etc. You get the point. The various princes, angels that is, worship God in patterns of seven. What is the point of such a liturgy? The community sees some kind of connection between itself and the angelic realm. While the precise nature of that connection is a bit unclear, it involves a breaking down of the barrier between heaven and earth, maybe even a transformation. Either the angels are thought to come down to worship among the community, or the community seeks to be transformed into the angelic realm, or maybe both. Angels and demons played a large role in their understanding of the world. Some of the scrolls suggest heightened eschatological expectations, that is, the end of the world was near. One entire scroll, the War Scroll, describes the order of the approaching great battle in which the children of light will defeat those of darkness. Those sentiments, though, do not occur frequently in the scrolls. So what do we have? Who wrote the scrolls? What is their story? According to one scholarly reconstruction, the group began with a group of Sadakite priests in the second century BCE. Whether they were annoyed by the Hasmonean usurpation of their role or had genuine disagreements about issues of purity and calendar, they withdrew from the temple and eventually at least some of them and their followers led by the teacher of righteousness settled at Qumran. Who was this so-called teacher of righteousness? The scrolls frequently mention him, but usually in only the most general way. We don't yet have a name for him, and some scholars doubt that he existed at all. One cluster of texts, though, that do treat him as a real historical figure are known as the Pesharim. This is often translated as commentary or interpretation, but more literally means solution. These Pesharim equate prophecies particularly those in the books of Habakkuk, Isaiah, Nahum, Hosea, Zephaniah, Malachi, and the Psalms, to events in the history of the group. The identifications are not based on any rules. They seem inspired. Figures and characters from these biblical books are interpreted as symbols for people, events, etc. in the community's history, at least as they imagine it. From these Pesharim, it would appear that the teacher of righteousness was persecuted by the priestly authorities. In one account, the wicked priest summons the teacher of righteousness on the day that the teacher, using a different calendar from the one that was used in the temple, regarded as the Day of Atonement. What may have begun as an internal disagreement among priests hardened over time, the reigning temple authorities did not change their ways. Over centuries, ritual disagreements transformed into the binary notion of the cosmos, shown in some of the texts. The division became an abyss into which, in the eyes of the predestined children of light, the rest of the world was destined to fall. When the Romans destroyed Qumran in 68 CE, though, they made no distinctions between the children of light and those of dark. 
While that strikes me as the most plausible historical reconstruction, it is not the only possible one. Some scholars have argued that there was no link between the settlement of Qumran and the scrolls. Based on the archaeological data, they view Qumran possibly as a fortress or a Roman villa that contained several kinds of workshops. The archaeological data is indeed ambiguous. There was a strange absence of evidence for living quarters at Qumran, for example, and not a single scroll fragment was found at the site itself. The primary graveyard outside its walls contain about 1,100 graves, apparently mostly male, which is all hard to account for if Qumran is seen as a sectarian center for some two centuries. The first excavators at Qumran were Catholic priests, and they tended to interpret their finds as evidence of something resembling a medieval monastery, complete with a scriptorium, where they postulated that the scrolls were written and copied. While some of these more recent excavators are certainly correct to question this interpretation, they may sometimes err on the other side. There are at least strong similarities between the pottery found at Qumran and those in the caves with the scrolls, and the impressive water installations at Qumran do indicate a community that had ritual purity very much in its mind. Standing on the plateau of Qumran, Cave 4 is directly visible across a ravine, and it is hard to imagine that anyone else in those forlorn parts would have deposited such a large quantity of written material there. For my money, the scrolls are connected to the settlement at Qumran, but that does not mean that we yet have all the answers. One answer that we do not have is the connection of the scrolls and the settlement to the Essenes. This is a vexing, but as I will make clear in just a second, largely irrelevant question. Ancient authors, especially Josephus and Philo, mentioned and described the Essenes. The Roman writer Pliny locates them on the shores of the Dead Sea. Josephus's extensive descriptions of the Essenes largely corresponds with the data that emerges from the sectarian scrolls. The problem is that there remain significant differences between the two sources, and the scrolls themselves never, not once, refer to Essenes. In some convoluted way, it is possible that the settlers at Qumran and the authors of the scrolls were Essenes as Josephus understood them. Josephus, of course, may have had only partial or secondary knowledge of the Essenes, thus accounting for his errors. Yet in the end, even if we are sure that they were Essenes, we don't really gain anything. This is what I mean by irrelevant. The scrolls speak for themselves about the nature of the community. If we interpret them against Josephus' description of the Essenes, we always risk reading into them Josephus' own errors. This may be the community that Josephus had in mind when he referred to the Essenes, but it is unclear to me what might be gained for us in this identification. The community of the Renewed Covenant, whether Essenes or not, were only one of several Jewish groups in Judea during the first century CE. Some of these groups are well known, such as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and first followers of Jesus. Others, also mentioned by Josephus, are more obscure. None, however, have left anything close to the first-hand accounts of the community of the Renewed Covenant. It will be to these other groups, both more famous and paradoxically more obscure, that we will turn in the next episode. 
You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.